finish recording. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, hi guys, how's it going? Uh, my name is Mohammed Loga. Uh, this is We Answer. This is a show where we answer your questions related to applying for or studying medicine. Um, just to recap, I'm a second year medical student here at the University of Leicester. Um, originally from Blackburn up north, and I came through the biological sciences transfer route. Um, just, just a very quick recap of uh, me for anyone that's new, I guess. Um, and today we've got another very special guest. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, we have Dr. Lisa Quinn. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, hi, uh, I'm uh, Lisa. I'm a lecturer um, at uh, Leicester Medical School. Um, and yeah, I've been uh, in lecturer post the last three to four years. Uh, was a, a clinical teaching fellow before that and um, was also uh working as a sort of clinician type background in in sort of um gp a and e mixture of sort of hospital-based specialties as well yeah cool um and we got a few questions from the listeners which is which i'm very thankful for um if anyone has any questions uh for the future or for a future episode or for anything uh, you can email me at mo.weanswer so this mo.weanswer at gmail.com or instagram is mzl underscore 18 so for any questions for the future that's just that's just there um and we've also I've also got a blog started recently based on adapted from the podcast um so if you go on instagram the link's in the bio or you can go on medium uh it's just muhammad loga and it, it's, it's all there um so we kind of so we, like i said we just talk about uh, medicine and your career and that kind of stuff you gave us quite a quick recap there so if you think about now how has this COVID kind of situation changed uh, your usual usual job? Um, I think in terms of the content of work um, that that um, still having to do, um, it, it's still very much the same. Uh, perhaps kind of more coming this way as a result of some changes that we're, we're having to make but I think it's more the kind of ways of working that have have, have really had to change um so certainly in in sort of academia um you know I'm working in in you know sort of university and in, in a medical school um there's there's a lot of discussion be- between staff and yeah. uh, a lot of that is often informal and you know ideas are often spurned when we're passing each other in a corridor and um obviously working in a virtual environment unless you were uh, you know you're firing emails to each other or arranging a time to catch up on a on a, on a platform like Skype or, or Zoom um that, that kind of nature of, of of working is is yeah is 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 very different um but yeah it's um i think you know in some ways fortunate that the nature of a lot of what i'm having to do can be done um from home um you know with, with certain sort of adjustments and, and so on but yeah still still being quite busy not not being furloughed <laughs> that's good to hear um so for, from my kind of end we were kind of i was chatting with my mates at the start and you're like oh it's just a bit, it's a bit boring being at home kind of trying to find stuff to do and i was kind of chatting because they're on they're on a different course like in like in law i think so they have they, it's a bit different they have assignments so they don't really have a big revision period before exams so mm-hmm. I was kind of chatting and obviously we finished around end of March time and we'd have exams April, May. So I was like, this is pretty similar to like my normal revision time where I'm just at <laughs> home. Reviving. I can't go out anywhere. 
and then he kind of countered with, but you have the option of going out. So he kind of... <laughs> yeah, I think up. I think that's that's the, the trickiest bit, isn't it? Um, obviously, restrictions are lifting slightly now, but um, kind of forming those boundaries between, you know, when you'd say, even if you were sort of studying at home during revision, yeah. um, there was a quite a very clear delineation between when you'd be in your... S- s- environment of study and when you could come out of that and actually have some downtime and do something a bit more fun like going out of the house um and i've certainly found that with with working from home um the 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 boundaries between you know having that journey of going into campus and the journey of coming home was a kind of natural break point um to, to the working day but uh now there's there's you know it's it's a matter of a few feet between my office and the and the landing (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's I've got my desk in my room, which is it's not the best, but you gotta make do with the situation. <laughs> and my bed literally just over there, about <laughs> two meters away, and the TV's just behind me. So I'm like, there's too many, uh, too many distractions. But um, yes, definitely. I, I guess it's it's good just to. So whilst we're on the, the, this kind of a topic, um, so how how would you say that you've been keeping, I guess, productive and focusing in this in this kind of environment compared to your work being in one place and your home and your chill life being in a different place? Um, I think it's probably taken a couple of weeks, months even, to kind of almost feel like I've adapted to the working from home uh, way of doing things. I, th- I think establishing a, a, a routine and a schedule and then trying to habitualise that has been really important. And then perhaps now that's kind of paying dividends in terms of of me feeling like I have got a, a, a cut of a kind of uh, outline to what I do each day um I think you know depending on whether there's meetings or things that you know that, that require a sort of live commitment to um you know I find that I, I I might start slightly later in the morning but I'll be working you know well into the evening or pick things up at the weekend you know there's a flexibility to um you know, to, to, to what I'm kind of doing bits and pieces, um, you know, which, which mirrors a little bit of, you know, how, how we tend to work normally. Um, you know, it's not all kind of constrained to, to Monday to Friday, nine to five. You have to kind of jump on those points when you're feeling particularly productive uh, if you want to get certain things done. <laughs> yeah. um, so if you, if you kind of go a bit, like we say, normal, when it was all kind of normal, um, so you were the uh, lead unit for sorry you were the lead for the head and neck unit um and me and one of my friends said um we kind of started this podcast together so we did a bit of a phase one unit recap uh, a review of all the units uh if you want to go online you can uh, for the listeners they can they can check them out i think there's a there's like a three episode kind of mini thing okay. that we did um and uh, i think you'd be pleased to know that um the head and neck unit was number one of the I think it was 27 or 28 units of but the you say that year. to all your podcast podcast <laughs> guests <laughs> no I don't I don't I don't we had uh, we had Dr Shu last time um but I kind of neglected to mention that we did this uh series <laughs> about it so <clears throat> I shall check that out then and have a, have a look at that it was it was, a, it was a toss-up between the head and neck unit and the neural unit so I think you can see where my interest kind of lies. Um, so if we kind of like you mentioned if we go back and we kind of go through your route as to how you got from say maybe you, you when you started university to how we got to now um 
so when you finished, I assume you must have finished school or college and um, or sixth form or whatever it was, and then you went into uni. Um, so did you start off with medicine or did you come through any other different way? Uh, no, I came through A levels to university. Um, yeah. Did um, so when I I don't think they still have it set up the same way now, but there used to be a medical degree that was six years that was St Andrews to to Manchester. Okay. Um, I think now St Andrews have kind of formed clinical alliances with with Edinburgh um, and, and Dundee to try and retain more of the sort of Scottish uh, students that were that were going through through St Andrews. But uh, yeah, I did six six years. Um, three years in St Andrews, um, three years down in Manchester um, for my medical medical degree. Um, so, for the for the three years, what kind of stuff were you doing up in St Andrews? So it was quite sort of traditional um, in 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 being. I mean, we we often sort of talk about medical courses uh, as sort of preclinical phases and, and clinical phases, but I think for for the most part, even you know the preclinical phases at most medical schools now integrate a lot of clinical application very early on um and and, and i think st andrews did that as well when i went to I mean i studied back in gosh it must have been like 2000 um so getting on for 20 years ago now when i first went into med school um and and that was three years of of you know sort of physiology anatomy uh cellular and molecular medicine and um uh, immunity and then those sorts of basic medical sciences uh did full kind of very dissection um as well at st andrews um and yeah it was fantastic uh really really good experience and and, and it gave a really good grounding for when i then transferred to manchester which while we entered the kind of clinical phase of their course they had kind of learned a lot of their earlier stuff through a problem-based learning um uh sort of process um yeah. And, you know, I, I felt that I came into the clinical phase very well prepared with kind of background sciences to, to make sense of the clinical stuff that we were yeah. seeing. Okay, so that's good. Um, and then, assuming you came towards the end of those six years, and then was it, is it the system that we have now or is it the old system? That... Um, it was um, in the first few years of the new system. So um, foundation programmes, I think, have been out for a couple of years. Yeah. Um by the time I applied um, and I applied uh, for an academic foundation program um, oh. which you know some of your listeners may be, may be familiar with but it's still two years of, of your foundation training yeah. um, but within that there is time allocated for um, exploring and, and developing interests in a particular uh, academic theme or field so so mine was allied to medical education whereas there's a lot that may be aligned to research or leadership um so yeah i did uh, an ace uh, an academic foundation program in medical education down at leicester actually okay um so how, how is that what what kind of stuff were you doing and so um at the time when i applied and and um for a few years afterwards it ran as um foundation year one was very much the same as any other foundation year program sort of yeah. rotations of four months around different um, medical and surgical specialties and then the f2 year was quite bespoke in that it was um mixed between doing emergency medicine mm. and working as a clinical demonstrator which is what our 
equivalent to what our clinical teaching fellows are now at, at Leicester. Um, but it used to be that that, that role was um, integrated with with continuing to work clinically over the academic year as well as doing um, some of the, 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 the teaching stuff. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do that particular academic foundation program was 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 for two things one was getting um some some real experience and involvement in, in medical education because i probably only started to just build an interest in that towards the end of my time at med, med school and then the second thing was that uh from about my third year of medical school onwards i was convinced that i wanted to do emergency medicine and pre-hospital oh, emergency okay. medicine um so this this academic foundation program was was just perfect for everything i thought i wanted <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's kind of, um, how it ran. Um, and then when I hit foundation year two, I absolutely loved the working at, at Leicester Med School as a, as a clinical demonstrator and, uh, found out very quickly that emergency medicine wasn't, wasn't my uh, cup of tea. <laughs> What's the reason why? How come um, it's very strange. I think your experiences of certain specialties as a medical student are very different to what they're like when you're actually you know the doctor even though as a you know obviously a junior doctor um that there were elements of it that i did really enjoy um and and i think more the sort of theoretical side was was particularly interest interesting so i'd done um you know extra courses in in sort of pre-hospital emergency medicine uh done my advanced trauma life support um all of these things but when it came to actually being on the shop floor um i was very um i think you had to be very confident in your clinical abilities and 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 you know feel confident to discharge patients um it, you know it almost sort of felt sometimes that it was uh, a bit like a you know gambling in the you know the odds of you having something serious or one yeah. in whatever um and therefore i'm i'm going to to send you home and and you know appropriately signpost and hope that that the worst case scenario doesn't come true. Yeah. Um, and I think you've got to have a particular uh, frame of mind to be able to manage that level of uncertainty um, and, and and dealing with really, really poorly, poorly patients in resource. That was my least comfortable area. I loved minors. Minors was brilliant. I really enjoyed the minors uh, and some of uh, the things that we'd, we'd see in, in, in majors. But when I was in the, the paediatric part of A&E or uh, the resource uh, area, that I was not at my happiest. <laughs> okay, so, um, like you mentioned, if you just go back a bit, like you said, in medical school, emergency medicine kind of stuck out to you. Was there any others that maybe stuck out to you a lot or what somebody that you were just like definitely not or how did you kind of go through that um I think I think once I'd kind of thought that emergency medicine was going to be my area of of interest I almost kind of shut down to to sort of considering other other options which I okay. you know as, as advice to sort of people in in sort of earlier stages stages of their uh, medical career particularly undergraduates I'd I'd really be mindful of doing that mm. um you know, I, I I did a lot of sort of extra things during my time at med school and and during during early foundation program that were all tied into, you know, making myself as competitive for you know applying for emergency medicine. Yeah. Um, 
and and hadn't really sort of spent time considering actually what what are the other things out there that might actually appeal and and be more suited to my you know sort of way of thinking and and, and things that um that that, I, that that give me job satisfaction i suppose yeah. um so yeah uh i didn't as soon as i did i did i think it was my first clinical placement in when i first came down to manchester my first oh. placement was in a e um and yeah just loved it and i was like nope this is what i want to do <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say i didn't enjoy my other placements but i don't know i just really enjoyed the the variety of um of things from uh from uh from the emergency medicine presented to me yeah okay um so so i think we got back to if you go forward again we're doing a lot of forward and back but uh, if you go back to like you mentioned you came i think you said you came into leicester for your second year foundation yeah so the the academic foundation program um was based at leicester um so i did all my foundation jobs at the royal and the 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 general leicester general um so yeah so you know i, I physically moved down to to the leicester area um for for the two years of my academic foundation program uh, and worked in and around the uh, the Leicester hospitals. So, so how is it? Because, um, like I said, I'm originally from Blackburn, um, and we kind of moved towards Leicester, towards Leicester after I started a year of my degree. So my family moved as well a year after me, um, and I'm still I still quite like the north, but um, maybe not Blackburn, maybe Manchester because I really like Manchester. When we were living up there, we could we could just go and it'd be like we could do a, de- a day trip because it'd be like 45 minutes to Manchester. Um, well, what what were your thoughts with like leaving Manchester and leaving the north? Um, I mean, I'm a, a you know I'm I'm a northerner by heart as well, um, and I grew up not far from Blackburn. Uh, I grew up in in, in Nelson, so uh, okay. <laughs> we're not not very far away at all. Yeah. Um, and I think there'll, there'll always be a special place um, in my heart for the north. And um, you know, if I could do the job that I do now in the north, I would do it at the drop of a hat. Um, <laughs> You know, because, yeah, my family's up there and, um, you know, my, my, you know, the majority of my life was spent up there. Um, and, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of, you know, fantastic things that, 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 that the north and Manchester and surrounding areas ha- have to offer. Um, I'd, I'd spent three years in, living in Manchester when I was doing the latter half of my uh, medical degree. And, you know, I think it was nice to actually just try a different city. Um, And I really, really actually, you know, really like Leicester. I think it's the right size city for what appeals to me. It's not too big and overwhelming, but it's got everything that I need. (laughs) They work in open days as well. And they kind of, a lot of people come and obviously London's a very big attraction and Birmingham and Manchester. But uh, I say to everyone, even me, like I'm very attracted by those big cities. But I was saying Leicester, it is a big city. It just doesn't feel like a big city. Yeah. And like yeah. you mentioned, it's got everything that you pretty much need. But like the town centre is 10 minutes away yeah. from our campus and we can just walk there for lunch and could be back yeah. uh, for afternoon if you have any afternoon sessions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. And geographically, you know, if you did want to, you know, go out to a bigger city, we are really not that far away from, from London, yeah, um, exactly. you know, or Birmingham or wherever. And, you know, you can, you know, you can go and visit those, those you know, sort of larger, busier places if, you know, you're feeling the... The, the need to, to to do that and and then you know not not have to travel very far at all because yeah, a couple of years ago i think i went to i went to london for christmas but i didn't come through leicester i came through birmingham and then on the way back to leicester i came and the, the train's like half one hour 
So I was like, it's so quick from, yeah. from Central London straight to Leicester in one hour. Yeah, yeah, hour. Like, yeah. It's really fast. Like it's quick. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely. So yeah. Um. So you, you came into Leicester. You finished your foundation years. What kind of what what did you go into after that? Um. So at the very beginning of foundation year two, it was only a sort of a matter of months when I kind of realised that um, emergency medicine wasn't wasn't where I wanted to, to sort of direct my career. Um, but I had another, you know, eight months <laughs> to get through. Um, yeah. You know, whereas, you know, in the normal foundation programme, you know, it's four months um, and then you move on to something different. Um, and I think doing the, the the clinical demonstrating at Leicester was, um, you know, it was, it was a, a welcome not distraction right. but it was yeah it was it was great that I, I had that and yeah. and actually I found that I enjoyed that way beyond you know I expected to to, to enjoy and uh, enjoy um that kind of um area of work and you know and I think it was that that <clears throat> kind of set set me on the trajectory for for, for where I've subsequently ended up in terms of, of my career um you know and I think one one of the the, the difficulties with realizing that um, emergency medicine probably wasn't what I wanted to to do, was there was very little time then to consider other options because I think it's about halfway through, probably less than that, uh, in your foundation year, that you have to then start applying for specialties. And I think now there's there's more instances of people taking F three years and then taking a gap year between foundation program and specialty training um but that that kind of wasn't as common um as it is now back you know sort of um you know however many years ago um you know you almost were on this sort of conveyor belt of right get through your foundation training get on to the next thing get on to the next thing and certainly with the academic foundation programs the the kind of track that you're encouraged to follow with that is to kind of maintain that element of um academic uh activity um so the the kind of track that follows academic foundation programs is doing something called an academic clinical fellowship which right. is effectively your st1 st to st3 yeah. three years but again part of that time is you're doing your clinical training and then there's time out to embed you know formal involvement in, in academic related activities okay. um so i there was an academic clinical fellowship in medical education, GP and medical education uh, in the Northwest Deanery. So going back up north. Um, and when I looked at the things that I did enjoy from emergency medicine and, and sort of tried to determine what, what specialties out there might fit with, with, with those sorts of things um, and speaking to uh, GPs that did work in A&E, and I did, I think, a week's kind of shadowing as well because I hadn't had a GP block in my foundation program at all. It was all based on what what I'd experienced as a student, and you know, from from things that I did, um, you know, during the beginning of foundation year two. Um, so yeah, so I, I applied for um, an ACF in GP and med ed um, back in the northwest deanery. Um, it was very competitive. I think there was only one. Um, I think they're a little bit more, uh, well, they're still very competitive, but I think there's a few more posts available um, in med ed specific ACFs. There's certainly, you know, 
been a reasonable number in in ACFs and academic foundation programs as they relate to research. Um, But I think it's only in recent years that we've seen a bit more um, a a sort of trickle uh, in of of more numbers relating more specifically to to MedEd. So, yeah, so it meant I could go back up north. Um, You know, I could get my teeth into a specialty that I thought would you know, sort of tick the way that I think and, and the yeah. things that I find enjoyable from clinical work while also continuing to explore and expand the the med ed side of things. Okay. So what 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 kind of stuff like day to day what you were you doing in up north in the fellowship? Um so the 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 one that ran through um you know in, in the northwest was um the, the, the different ones are set up slightly differently so some yeah. of them will have you know literally a, a, an out block so you'd take six months say of one year to do the academic stuff and then the other six okay. months you would do um your clinical stuff um the way it was at, um where i did it at the time was it was kind of in- integrated it was you know you would do a year and you would do clinical throughout the year and you do academic throughout the oh. year and i found that quite tricky to you know i to get my teeth into anything yeah. um i certainly remember as an st as an st2 um i'd, I'd do a, I think it was a four or six month placement in a specialty but i'd have a day a week academic um or no, it was two days academic i think at that point and then three days clinical and yeah. i found it very difficult to find my feet um in the clinical side of things on yeah three days and then suddenly I was you know doing other things with my my two days that were that were not clinical um you know so that that would that was tricky I did struggle with that um but yeah in terms of what you did on the academic side um I think and again I I think this has changed quite a bit now um across the board there wasn't a lot of guidance or structure to to what was expected um you know, so I found myself just, uh, I approached the clinical skills unit at Withenshaw Hospital, which is where I was based at the time, and asked um, if there was any sort of teaching sessions I could get involved with um, through the clinical skills unit. And there were... Did, sorry, I think I did um, shadowing there. But is that the one near the airport? Yes. Yeah, South Manchester. Yeah, Withenshaw oh, yeah. Hospital. Um, sorry, just to, I was literally just cut you off there. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think my dad's friend, um, he actually went to the school and college that I went to. Yeah. So, and he was a doctor and he was a respiratory doctor up in, up in Withenshaw. Um, but he was doing a lot of research as well. Like, I think he was doing his PhD when he was there. Okay. Um, but I think he was doing, like, similar to what you were doing, where it was, he'd do, was like, two or three days clinical work and then research other three days. And I, I didn't enjoy the research stuff, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think when you're first finding your feet, you know, when you're, um, you know, so I, I, you know, even as an ST2, I was doing clinical specialties that I hadn't done before. So even though I was an ST2, you know, I hadn't got ST2 level experience of Bob's and Gynae. I, I hadn't yeah. even done a foundation job in, in Bob's and Gynae. Um, and so not being able to, you know, it takes a while to kind of find your feet and, and, and really feel like you're, you know what you're doing um, and often with with you know you often hear with with foundation doctors saying that by the end of the four months that they're just about kind of like confident and, comfortable, and then they're moving on to another another yeah. another rotation um but the yeah i found that 
that because they weren't specialties that I had much experience in at all, um, I, I did really st- struggle to find my feet and, and feel confident that I knew what I was doing, even though I was kind of, um, you know, there as an ST2. Mm. Um, and, and having that kind of academic expectation as well was, was quite tricky. Um, and I think if you're more expert in it, you know, if, if you're a consultant, for example, and you really know your stuff clinically in your specialty, it's perhaps a little bit easier to manage that difference between your work, you know, what you do on a working week. Um, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's personal, isn't it? It depends how, how what you feel comfortable doing. Um, so after that three years, um, what, what, what did you go into after that? So... Um, the so that the academic clinical fellowship was four years um okay. and it was a gp training track so normally i think it still is now gp is th- three years and then at the end of your three years so long as you've got all your necessary exams completed you're a fully fledged gp yeah. um and um yeah there's, there's a bit of a theme here um when i started to do gp <laughs> uh, i found that i didn't really enjoy it um and and I again, think, it... sorry, sorry, again to cut you off. But I think it's it's really nice that you can. I don't know if I don't know if nice is the right word, but it's it's good to see that you can start something thinking that you like it, and then you are you do have the ability to change something else. I'm not I'm not aware of a lot of other careers, but um, I'm pretty sure that a lot of careers don't really allow for that flexibility. So it's kind of nice to hear that you you can think that you want to do one thing, and you don't have to stick that for the next. Yeah you retire you can just change another one as long as you're as long as that's what you want yeah and and I think that's 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 you know really important point to make because medicine does feel a bit like you're on a conveyor belt and you can't put the brakes on um but you know what what you know it's a long training progress uh, long training process and then when you're a consultant or a GP you know whatever that's in that's potentially what you're going to do for the rest of your working career your you know your working life and you know I, I think one of the things that you know I've certainly learned and I think it just comes naturally with with life experience is if you can find something that you do as a job that doesn't feel like a job and it feels like um you know you genuinely enjoy doing it then jump at the opportunity to to make that your career and and I know that you know I'm very fortunate that for me that is medical education and I found that and I've been able to shape a career out of that um you know but it could be anything you know it could be a particular specialty that you just haven't yet found yet and um I think with a lot you know because of this you know almost sort of conveyoring from foundation program into ST training is that a lot trainees have have realized you know maybe a year or two into a specialty that it isn't what they want to do um you know and have you know yes we you know everyone will have days where they're like oh this is this is hard you know I really haven't enjoyed today and that's all part and parcel of just work in general but um if you know deep down that this isn't the right thing for you to be doing and you know that this is something that you're going to be engaging with for a very very long time there are options and there are so many options in medicine, you know, for you to, to, you know, to put a pause on things, you know, even if that means coming out of, you know, a really highly competitive specialty training program, because you've realized that, 
you know it really isn't right for you you know you've given it a good stab you've good given it a good few years and and really you know you've you've tried everything you can to make it work but it still isn't right then yes you can you can you know you know it's not you know obviously what everybody does and necessarily should do but you can if you need to step away and, and and you know put a pause on things try and get a bit more experience in maybe a few other specialties and then and then you know apply again exactly and i think um so i've got obviously with this podcast i've got a lot of questions or you get the usual question of why medicine and etc etc one of the, one of the main things is that there is such a variety of things to do and like you mentioned you can if it's not really what you can, I think that's the reason why I'm quite looking forward to the next couple of years as well, is a few years, because you can experience everything and then you can make a decision on what you want to do next. Um, so I think we got to the the GP, uh, trying the GP out. Uh, oh. <laughs> how, how, yeah. long, how long was that for? Uh, so I, so the academic clinical fellowship that I was on was four years. Yeah. And at the beginning of my ST3 year, I resigned. Um, because I'd reached a point where I'd spent three years, I suppose two years, two and a bit years, um, working out why it wasn't right for me and whether there were things I could do to maybe make it so it was right for me. Um, And because I was doing an academic clinical fellowship in GP and med ed, I was in the fortunate position to know that there was something else that I was doing that I, that I loved and that I wanted to make a career out of. Um, I think it would have been a much scarier prospect to resign. Um, had I not had an idea of God, what am I going to do? What, what do I enjoy? You know, where do I fit in this world? Um, you know, so I think it was it was helpful that there was something I was engaged and, and, and was developing expertise in that I could really make a career of. Um, the the difficulty was that it wasn't something I could make a career of straight away. Um, so before I obviously resigned, I'd spent a year, 18 months looking at what, you know, I needed a job. I couldn't not have an income, um, but I didn't want to just be jumping out of medicine just for the sake of getting out I wanted to try and formulate a new career in whatever I stepped into um so what I ended up doing was I became a medical writer um which was um kind of jumping out of the public sector into sort of the private business world in a, in a way but it had a very strong element of, of of still relating to medical education um and you know i did i did that for 18 months after after i left medicine i did i worked as a medical writer for 18 oh, months and sorry was that with like a certain company or yeah like... so um i worked for a company uh, medical writing uh, uh medical communications agencies they're called oh. um and based up in in Macclesfield in Cheshire um and you your clients are the pharmaceutical company um that will be developing new drug therapies um and as part of their process will be wanting to raise awareness of a particular disease the challenges of treating and managing that disease and then obviously where this new treatment that they're putting through various clinical trials you know slots into the you know into, into the um 
in, into the need for 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 new therapies um and i work with um uh, genentech and novartis um who are um companies that well the the, the areas that i was work, working with was very much around respiratory um and they at the time i was working they were just in very early clinical trials with a drug called omalizumab omalizumab um, which is a, I think it's a, I can't remember now, I think it's a monoclonal um, anti-IgE uh, therapy that was being used for treating um, very severe asthmatics, um, okay. treatment-resistant uh, asthmatics, um, where everything else had failed in terms of managing their, their signs and symptoms. So they're in the process of, of trying to they pushed it through, they had been through human trials, um, and they were trying to get nice approval for it to be one of their recommended therapies and also they were finding that it was proving to be very useful oh slam the door uh very useful for um treating uh chronic urticaria um right. so there were there was some really interesting stuff I, I got to fly pretty much uh to places you know in america to attend massive conferences to 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 write up what other people were doing and and you know what was being added to the to the knowledge base so it was a really exciting 18 months um but it, it wasn't quite the area of medical education that that was really where i wanted to be yeah it, it wasn't really the end goal as, as you mentioned so after after the 18 months what what did you go into after that uh so then the i was keeping my eye out for medical education jobs um okay. because obviously when I first left and resigned I kind of looked into pursuing medical writing as a career um but I'd always kind of wanted to look for kind of the full-time medical educator role um and, and there were very few and far between um but one that, that came up was a clinical educator at Bradford Royal Infirmary um okay. working with Leeds medical students um so I applied for that and uh, and was successful and then spent two and a half years um and moved over to uh to Halifax um and yeah and 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 worked uh, as based at the hospital but we um were very much responsible for supporting the the training of uh you know years one to two one to three mainly um who were based at the hospital on, on their various placements um also did quite a bit in sort of simulation with with our final years uh so got lots and lots of um experience in kind of the organizational leadership aspects of, of medical education as well as kind of content creation and and you know the face-to-face -face stuff um and and you know that helped kind of build up the expertise and things that I was working towards so I could apply for a, a lecturer position at some point and I think having done the clinical demonstrator job at Leicester I think one of my long-term hopes was that I could get a lecturer position um at Leicester okay. um you know and, and the sort of steps and things that I, I did were ultimately you know really valuable in being able to um you know be successful in in, in acquiring a lecturership um and you know and the so when I finished the clinic, you know, I did the clinical educator role for, for two and a half years. And then the, I kind of took a step back a little bit in terms of doing a clinical teaching fellowship, but I wanted to oh. kind of come back to Leicester. Um, you know, I, the responsibilities that I had as a clinical educator, Bradford were far higher than what 
you know was expected of, of a CTF, but it was kind of a way into um, you know start refamiliarizing myself with Leicester's way of doing things and, and trying to seek opportunities to to get some of the things that I couldn't get as a clinical educator based out in a hospital yeah. that I could possibly get access to by working in a medical school. Um, you know, so it was kind of part of of a, a strategic plan to to tick yeah. the boxes for the experiences that I needed to demonstrate. Okay. And then you you became a lecturer here at Leicester, right? Mm-hmm. 2016, um, I think it was. Okay, so that's quite recent, you know? Mm. Okay. And mm. then, um, actually, if I think back, I think I was in college then. I think I started college then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so how did you end up, like, like I mentioned at the start, you have the unit for the... You're the unit lead for the head and neck unit. Um, how how did that come about? How did you end up being the unit lead for that? Um, so the so I, I I'm have a, a um an interest in you know I do enjoy anatomy um, when it yeah. comes to kind of uh, um, medical subjects and things um, and I taught on the head and neck unit as a as a CTF um, you know and, and kind of you know sort of really made a point of trying to get involved with that as much as possible and the quite often in medical education um serendipity comes into it and it it just so happened that when the lecturer position became available it was um requiring someone to take on the module leadership role of head and neck um, and that was something that I was more than happy to to be able to have the opportunity to do because, like I say, it was a, a topic that, you know, I really, really enjoyed and I really wanted to get my teeth into. And, you know, educationally, I felt there was a, a lot that you can bring into teaching an anatomy subject over some some other sort of subjects uh, at medical school. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of how it how it happened. <laughs> OK, so I got a question. It's quite a funny one for one of the listeners. It's quite uh, relevant to head and neck. Oh, we lost a bit of. We just we just cut out there for a second. Nope. So so it's kind of specific. It's quite it's quite a weird question. Specific to head and neck. And he asks, um, why does my nose whistle, and how do I prevent or remedy it? Nose whistling is. Well, um, is is it a tuneful whistle? <laughs> um, well, I'm guessing, you know, obviously air flows through your nose, um, you know, a, a massively important part of the, the upper um, um, airways is your, is your nose and your nasal cavity. Um, and I suppose anything that creates slight turbulence of air can uh, cause a, a whistle to occur. So whether he's got a blocked nose or something, some anatomical uh, structure yeah. that is, is is creating a certain flow of air that, that produces a whistle, Um uh, he's either stuck with it or um he just needs to blow his nose a bit more <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i to think back to the unit and did you did you talk about why we why we whistle because i saw something online where someone was saying you can learn if you don't know how to whistle you can learn how to whistle it's like a, it's a through leg. your nose or through your mouth oh, like a normal like sorry we're talking oh, about normal. <laughs> normal whistle, like, like a mouth whistle. we have to specify <laughs> Uh, I'm presuming that the listener's question was about nose whistling, not yeah, mouth whistling. Yeah, nose whistling, but now I'm asking about nose <laughs> mouth whistling. I suppose it's like any, um, you know, you can train yourself to sing, can't you? Yeah. You know, sing well. Um, so, you know, it's just building up 
the way you coordinate your muscles around your lips, I suppose, to to create uh, create a whistle. Yeah. Um, and also on the subject of the head and neck unit, uh, so say I'm a student that's coming into second year uh, later this year, and yours is kind of one of the big units in in this third semester. How? What's your kind of top tips for? I know you talk about it when you start the unit as well, but any kind of quick top tips for them coming into second year? Um. I think the the first thing to uh, perhaps raise address is is I think so, so, so there's there's a tendency for for students to um, feel that they have a, a particular learning style or identify with a learning style. You know, whether it's I'm a visual learner, I'm an auditory learner, I'm a whatever learner. Um, and 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 if you if you're framing your thinking in that way and you perceive a a subject to lend itself to a particular style of learning and that style of learning doesn't mate, uh, uh, marry with what you think is your style of learning. There can almost be a barrier that's already put up there. Mm. And, you know, not going down the whole track of the fact that learning styles aren't a thing, they're learning preferences and actually there's there's some very basic mechanics behind how we all learn that we can tap into. Um the anatomy you know is a visual subject and yeah. you know we are all you know if you're going to talk about styles we're all actually very capable visual learners in most of how we interact and our memories are visual uh, you know if we think of someone um you know we, we we have an actor that comes to mind their face comes to mind not a text description of their appearance or their name um, you know, and, and so we're very capable at actually learning visually. Um, but I think sometimes students who perhaps don't feel they are visual learners feel that anatomy is going to be a real struggle for them. Um, and and, and I'd, I'd, I'd encourage them not to be put off by that and actually think that, you know, yes, you've got to approach it in a visual aspect because, and I think I say this at the beginning of, of, of the unit, is that you you think about a subject in the way in which you've learnt it. You know, an anatomy is three-dimensional. It's all about relationships, you know, so it's not enough to just be looking at pictures and reading text. You've got to start filming, forming those mental images yeah. in your mind of how the anatomy appears and how things relate to each other, um, you know, because it's only then that you can then use your knowledge to problem solve, um, you know, because you might be coming at it from a slightly different perspective um, when a patient presents with a problem. Um, so... I think that would be my first tip is 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 not to be put off by the fact that it is, yes, it's a very visual subject, but that's a really good thing. It actually lends itself really well to how the human mind and memory works. Um, and to, to always start, you know, kind of with the bigger picture and then slowly start to add the detail. I think it's very easy in anatomy to suddenly be really overwhelmed by this long list of new words and, and, and new structures that you've never heard of and, and really struggle to kind of, scaffold them and, and put them all together so starting with the bigger picture you know and then just slowly adding the detail to that I think is, is, is an important way to, to approach uh, anatomy based topics in particular. You kind of talked about learning styles in there I think based on we did a test I think at the start of first year and I'm like was that was that not the test? Or yeah. Was, it, was well, that the dyslexic screen? Yeah it's, it's, a, it's a screening tool but I don't know why and this isn't you know, it's not created by the medical school. It's created <laughs> by uh, some other um, business. Yeah. But why they put a learning styles inventory in there is beyond me. Um, and it's it's a battle um, 
to to not have that <laughs> because it is in that tool and um you know it, it's it's very hard when you're trying to convince students in particular to 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 realter that 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 mindset of thinking that they only would learn in a particular way um and then you're doing a, a big screening test that includes the learning <laughs> i think you have to know that i i was classed as a mixed one so i'm capable of everything so it, it's all okay <laughs> And I think that's, you know, if, if you if we are to take anything helpful away from that, I think it identifies that, that most people can learn through, you know, through different means. And, and really what it comes down to is what is the subject that you're learning? Yeah. You know, if, if you're, um, uh, I don't know, if you're learning music, um, you know, then being kinesthetic and holding the instrument and, and learning how where to put your fingers if it's on yeah. a guitar or a piano then you're going to learn it through those sorts of means and, and, and through, you know, listening and, and looking at, you know, musical, um, you know, music as it's written down. Um, you know, but if you're going to learn about, um, I don't know, Krebs cycle, um, you know, being kinesthetic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to build, build a Krebs cycle out of bricks. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it just, that I think that's, you know, it shows just how actually thinking about, you know, that that we have a learning style. You know, if you actually really think about it and challenge it, you can see that it doesn't it doesn't work like that. It you learn something based on the nature of the thing that you're learning. You know, and if it lends itself to being something that requires hands-on practical skills, you know, like a lot of the clinical skills that you use, uh, clinical examinations, you're gonna you you're gonna learn them through a complement of kinesthetic practice, yeah. uh, as well as complementing with maybe some videos and and some texts that you've read about why you're doing what you're doing. I think I was doing a question earlier today. I just started my revision again, and it was I think it was from the head and neck unit, and it was um, something to do about the relationship between the nose and other areas and in like, diseases and stuff. So I because I haven't done these in a while, so like. I didn't like write that. The way I did it was literally, I had my nose and I just went, and I was like, well, okay, what's out here? Like, and that's how I did it. Like, yeah. It's just, I'm a, it's a very visual subject. So you just, yeah. that's just how it works. And uh, that's, 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 that's a, that's knowledge and a way of understanding that topic that is now useful to you. Um, you know, because that's what, you know, when you see patients that present with, you know, undifferentiated problems and a diagnosis that you don't know, you've got to be able to be malleable with the knowledge that's inside your head, um, you know, and, and working out the relationships between different, you know, anatomical structures or body systems. You've got to be good at being able to do that. And I think if you've learned them, you know, in a, in a very particular way, um, that means that you can't think about them in the way that you need to think about them when you're presented with real patient problems. Um, you know, you, you find yourself, you, you struggle, you struggle with that kind of clinical reasoning and then problem solving uh, aspect. Another, another situation that comes to mind, um, it's quite funny actually. So I think it was before ESA three exams and obviously we go through practice questions. Uh, and then we've got, so we've got a group chat with my friends and someone sends up a, I think it's MRI of, of, the, of the head area. And I think it was around this level, so around the level of the eyes. So you get a little bit of the brain at the back. So they, mm -hmm. someone asked a question and they were so confused about, oh, I don't know what this is. Uh, how's, the, how's the brain that low? And I, I just answered this. It's around the level of the cerebellum. And they were, they were like, their minds were literally <laughs> blown. And they were like, oh, Mo, how do you know that? I was like, uh, I just kind of thought, I just kind of thought about it. And it's at the level. So they yeah. were like, they were like, but I didn't read any, any textbook or anything. I was like, guys, just 
it's just it's the mental you know you have a mental image don't you of of how things are and how they relate to each other it's like you know if you were you know trying to navigate a new town um and, and you had in your head so so the way you navigate or provide instructions to someone um around a town that you're very familiar with versus a town that you're not very familiar with the town that you're very familiar with you have a a representation in your brain almost of okay if to get to to the to the shopping center you know you need to go down x street and turn left and then take a right and you can actually see it you can visualize that path in your head um because you've built up that mental construction of you know those streets and those routes um whereas you know you're you're coming at trying to do that you know for a, a a town that you've no experience of wandering around it's very very hard isn't it you've got you know nothing to kind of base your 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 recommendations of uh, on um you know and i think you know i think that analogy is kind of very similar with with anatomy you have to sort of build up those mental um sort of schematics of, of how how the body actually is beneath the skin <laughs> so i think another i thought of another funny thing when you mentioned the the town thing so um we've got this bit of a running joke in our family where if someone says they don't know where something is like one of the uncles or one of the dads their way of explaining where it is is <laughs> they basically try to tell you they say so basically you go straight here and then like you said you go to left to the street and we just look at each other and we're just like <laughs> No, we're not going to remember any of this. Yeah. But we don't we don't stop them because, you know, they're parents. We just let them go and then we're like, we're going to Google Maps at the end of the day. Yeah. It's fine. Like, yeah. it's but it, it makes no sense to, you know, I well, absolutely same thing. It makes no sense to us because we've got nothing in our brains that is yeah. able to follow the imagery of what they're describing. Yeah, exactly. um, it's like, you know, oh, yeah, if you visit such and such a place, make sure you go and visit such <laughs> yeah. and such. You know, if you go left down whatever street and then take a right after the traffic lights and then do a right, you're like... I can't. I have no idea what you're talking about. It means right. nothing to me. I've got nothing in here that represents those streets and roads that you're talking about. So I'm not going to remember what you've said, and I'm not going to be able to do anything with that information when I'm actually in the town or the city that I'm visiting. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think you know that that's that's kind of the you know the a key point to education, isn't it? Is that you know as the students come through medicine and study the different subjects, is we're starting to 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 help you lay those you know particularly in anatomy those visual foundations so that you can you know you can navigate them um when you when you're when you're faced with with the unexpected uh, and problems and things to solve yeah i think we're coming towards the end now but we've got another question by jake uh, he's in our year and he asks um are you involved in any research projects or extracurricular things at the moment uh, and are there any opportunities for students to be involved i know uh, you've got a podcast that you're thinking about um, starting but is there anything else um so um i'm just in the process of uh putting together so i've got a, a presentation at amy amy is one of the sort of big international medical education conferences uh, i can't remember what the letters stand for a m e e in capitals um so i've got a, a presentation that i'm writing for that and uh in the throes of also writing up um the, the the research that the presentation is on uh, for for publication, um, but that that's it, it's it, the research was in and around looking at um, what 
learning techniques medical students use and their beliefs around the effectiveness of different techniques uh, so it's a like i said it's a real area of interest it's it's underpinning the theme of of the of the of the, the podcast that, that that you'd alluded to the, the hippocampus podcast which um will be coming soon um but it, it really is kind of opening up um the discussion uh, on, on really sort of thinking critically about what we can do best to optimize um our learning uh, in any any facet of our lives really not just just on the medical course um so yeah the, the, there are opportunities for uh medical education research projects um it it just depends on what people are doing when and people's workloads. Um, obviously, with the COVID situation, um, a lot of people's not not me personally because I'm not kind of involved in sort of laboratory clinical type research, but a lot has been directed towards kind of ensuring that efforts and time are put into research relating to COVID. Um, you know, but I think you know moving forward as restrictions and things are lifted, there will be more opportunities for students to perhaps get involved in in in, in research. Um, I would say as, as a as a tip, if you are interested in medical education research, is unless unless the the, the, the you know someone like myself or another academic member of staff has a, a project in mind that they haven't started yet uh, and are keen to kind of get an extra pair of hands to help. Um, that that's fine then when a student sort of comes and says oh you know i'd really be like like to get involved in something but more often than not either we've already gone through that research or in the midst of it and there's very little that we can perhaps offer for students to get something meaningful from it so what i'd suggest that is if you if you are interested a tact to take is to perhaps think of a project yourself that you're interested in um you know, and, and really show that you've got the motivation and, and, and the interest to, to to do a medical education project. You know, it only, only needs to be small, but it needs to be thought through. Yeah. And then you're putting feelers out for, um, you know, so an academic member of staff in, in the med school to to supervise and help support and direct you and, and sort of give you guidance along along the route. And I think you're more likely to be successful in 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 those sorts of endeavours than emailing someone saying i'm really interested in med ed have you got any projects for me um <laughs> uh, because like i say sometimes more often than not the projects are already running yeah. um you know or or there isn't anything currently that that there's, there's the brain capacity to be thinking about um i kind of forgot to ask another question about the head and neck unit um so obviously we've got our exams because of the whole, whole covid situation in, in at the end of august now and like I said, I've just restarted my revision. Uh, any any top tips for us guys that are in uh, revision revision stages for exams? Um, I think um, use the intended learning outcomes. Um, you know, so if you've picked a particular session from a module, look at the associated intended learning outcomes, and rephrase them as questions, and try and answer. And, and put some form of explanation to those intending learning outcomes first before you start to read over or revise from your notes. Um, that that's that's the best way to shine a spotlight on genuinely what you do know without prompting, versus what you think you knew because when you've just read it in your notes, it's familiar and you recognise it because it's not the first time that you've come across that information. And I think when you've you've just 
if you approach things about, right, I'm going to pick this topic and I'm going to read over the information and then I'm going to do some questions on it, you'll probably do quite well on the questions and you'll probably feel like you, you know the stuff quite well. Yeah. Um, but actually what what's what can happen is that the fluency, the cognitive ease of reading over something that actually you have looked at before yeah. wills you into a sense of thinking that you know it and actually when that information isn't in front of you um, and, and acting as a prompt and you actually test yourself from pure long-term memory and you realise it's not there, um, <laughs> you don't want that time to be in your exam. You want to be putting yourself in that position at the start of every one of your revision sessions and then you can target, when you do come to restudy something, you can target specifically to things that you know accurately were not in your long-term memory um, and, and you know use your time more, more efficiently. Like my top tip as you were going through that i was uh kind of i didn't want to interrupt again but it just kind of went through my head and i was going through a tick box because i literally do the exact same thing good so i get i get the training learning outcomes i make questions from them and then i put them in a google sheet um for, for each session and i make the answers with them so generally i make the answers during term time and then i go through them um like now whenever it's exam time or whenever i have time um, and what I do is I color code them. So obviously, if I mm -hmm. if I don't know any of the question, I don't get any of the answer. It's it's a very dark red. And if I do know all of it, it's a very dark very dark green. Is that a, Sorry. it's just like a nice <laughs> color of green? It's a perfect green. It's not very dark. It's a nice color of green. <laughs> and then you get everything in between. And then so if I am in a situation where uh, I'm like I don't feel like doing again what I already know, I'm gonna skip to the orange and the reds and kind of go through that. Um, and that's how I go through it. So. Yeah, it's Brilliant. good to know that I'm kind of on the right track. Yeah, and and I think, you know, the, there's lots of, you know, ways of, of, of embedding that kind of repeated, effortful retrieval of, of information um, and, and spacing it, which is obviously what your colour coding helps you to do, is to, to come back to things more frequently that you're struggling to remember and things that you've remembered well, you don't revisit, you know, as, as soon. Um but I think an important point on 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 that because I know flashcards and and those sorts of things are very popular with with students is remember it's not the making of them that's important yeah. it's the using them yeah. um, you know so if you find that you're spending a lot of time writing the answers you know putting the 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 perfect answer on the back of your flashcard or in association with your question just think actually is there a way I can do this a lot quicker so you know is it just a case that actually I could just signpost on my question to where on a lecture slide or where in my notes the answer is. Yeah, so I kind, of, um, sorry, I kind of do that. So if it's, like you said, like if it's an anatomy-based one and you've got a lecture slide with a picture of, I don't know, circular Willis, mm -hmm. I'll literally just get that, put it in a document, and then just write in the thing, pick number seven on page number yep. 12, A to E, and then scroll through that. Um, Brilliant. And a lot of, I think for your lecture slides, like the cranial nerves ones, I'll, I'll just do like a kind of blank exercise, so I'll just blank out certain bits and then just go through it. It just makes it much more easy, like I said, and also the yeah. workbook as well. You can just do a fill in the blank exercise again, yeah. just white it yeah. out, and you can just go through it. It's much more faster. Yeah, all those small group work questions are a, you know, a huge resource of questions to try again. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, like I've said, you know, to, to, to a few students, you know, if there are things that you do come across again and you're not 100% sure you got them right, there's you know, there's, there's discussion boards that you can post anonymously on that are still being uh, monitored. Um, so you can always check, um, you know, if you've understood something correctly um, or, you know, you just want to some reassurance.
Um, so I think we're kind of towards the end there. Um, I'll just finish with a kind of less medically orientated question. Um, as we know, med medicine is quite an intense uh, field of study and, and career. Anything, is there anything that you do outside of your career to kind of relieve stress and that kind of a thing? Um, I'd love to say that um, <laughs> I do some really exciting things, but I don't. <laughs> um, I, uh, well, uh, walking, we've got two dogs. Yep. Um, so I love I love I love my two dogs and, and spending lots of time with them and walking them um, well, out and about. Name, you don't mind. Uh, it's Bonner and Penny. Um, they're both rescues. One's come from Spain. Um, we, we went over last year and did some volunteering at a dog rescue kennel place um, in in Spain, uh, and we met her there and and then subsequently adopted her. Uh, and then our other dogs also from a, a local rescue. Uh, so I spend yeah they, they form a lot of 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 uh, my life outside of work um and you know family friends uh you know just normal non-exciting but very valuable uh downtime <laughs> yeah exactly uh nothing like um i'm learning to to use a keyboard or piano or guitar or anything just like the usual no i do i do keep saying to myself so i used to play guitar i used to okay. um um i was quite into um Metallica and, and and those sorts of things when I was younger um right. and a part of me keeps saying I'm going to to pick the guitar back up again and 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 start to you know bring a bit of guitar playing into my uh my daily schedule but uh I've, I've yet to commit to that <laughs> okay hopefully one day when you have time you, you'll get back to that don't worry. Oh, I, I'm sure I have time I, I can make time <laughs> I just can't be bothered <laughs> Okay, so like we said, um, I think we kind of got to the end of everything there. Thanks very much again, Dr. Lisa Quinn, for coming on. It's um, right. As usual, if anyone has any questions, the email is mo, just M-O dot at gmail.com. Uh, Instagram is mzl underscore 18. Uh, and yeah, thanks very much again. Uh, and thanks everyone else for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.